extra, extra, read all about it. I love black history, so proud about it. I know where I come from and I don't doubt it. Stand on the roof and shout it, shout it, sings Culture Queen. We here at Solution to Violence and our guest today, artist, author, and political activist, Hannah Drake, believe that African-Americans should be proud of their history and that the history of African-Americans should be taught to every American child, regardless of their race, creed, or color. Welcome, friends. We are Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM. You are listening to Solutions to Balance, a program sponsored by WFMP Radio. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views are expressed here are those of our guests and not necessarily that of the host or the station. If you'd like to share your views, you may contact us by visiting us at email solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Today's program was produced by the Louisville Fellowship of Reconciliation and the Louisville Swords of Justice as part of their third Thursday lunch series. Today's Solution to Violence program was originally recorded February the 16th before a live Zoom audience. Our keynote speaker today is Hannah Drake, Barbara Boyd, Director of the Louisville Branch of the Association for the Study of African American Life History, as well as on the Board of Directors of Source of Justice, will introduce Hannah Drake. Beverly Marmion will welcome our Zoom audience and briefly explain the history of the Louisville Fellowship of Reconciliation and Source of Justice. Good morning, everybody, on this gray morning. I'm glad that you all have electricity for this program. Uh, and uh, all of, the, of us do as well, except perhaps one person. So let me welcome you on behalf of the Fellowship of Reconciliation and the Solutions to Violence Network here in Louisville. It's Black History Month, uh, and we always want to use Black History Month to the fullest extent we can, even though every month is Black History Month across uh, the entire year. Idea for Black History Month has deep roots in Kentucky and continues today with our speaker, Hannah Drake. Black History Month was established in 1926 by Dr. Carter G. Woodson. February was the month chosen because it's the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln, was born in Hodgenville on February 12th, and Frederick Douglass, who was born in Maryland, but we do not know the exact day of the month. With Dr. Carter G. Woodson, who was born in Virginia, worked in West Virginia as a child of Appalachia, the fact that he entered Berea College, uh, an integrated institution in 1901, and in 1903 was granted the degree of Bachelor of Literature laid the ground for his amazing career as the African-American historian par excellence, his drive across his entire life to keep African-American history in the forefront of American history is another reason why uh, I think that Kentucky it should claim part of the reason why it was founded here. We have a chapter here of Asala, the Association for the Study of African-American Life and Literature. Uh, Barbara Boyd, who is our uh, member of our committee and also the chairman of the local chapter of Asala. 
Lynn's another reason why we want to celebrate this month. Usually, as you know, we have uh, streamed on Facebook right now, but it is also going to show up on the FOR, LouisvilleFOR.org website in a few days. We'll remain there for, for several years so that you can rewatch it and enjoy it again, learn from it. It is also being carried on Forward Radio. You all just hear my voice now, but Barbara Boyd is going to introduce Hannah Drake, our speaker for today. And you may hear Barbara on audio only, but Barbara, take it away. Thank you, Beverly. And this is Barbara Boyd. But Hannah Drake is going to talk about the unknown project. Um, I'm just talking from memory. I've been to the unknown project. It's uh, on the banks of the Ohio River between 9th and 10th Street. If you turn right on Main Street, which is a one-way street, it will take you right down to the banks. And you go under the viaduct, there's a bench with footprints of enslaved Americans. Hannah, I, like I said, I apologize because I had everything written and I can't get into my page. But Hannah will guide us through the process. And if you have a chance, um, you can book an event with Hannah. And she will take you through the whole process. Hannah, take it away. Um, thank you so much, uh, uh, Barbara. And it's totally fine. I, I certainly do uh, understand uh, technology. Thank you for uh, letting me be here today. Um, uh, but thank you for inviting me to uh, uh, speak about the Unknown Project. Um, uh, we do have a presentation down at the site every second Saturday of the month. Um, it starts at 10 o'clock. Um, so you're welcome to come down the second uh, Saturday of the month. We do uh, lib a libation ceremony. We read the names of the enslaved. Um, we kind of walk through this whole uh, process of, you know, what it possibly would have been like to, in fact, uh, carry or attempt to carry or pull 70 pounds of cotton, which uh, is a third of the amount that enslaved people were required to pick um, every single day. So I want to uh, tell you how the Unknown Project came to be. When I speak about the Unknown Project, I truly do believe uh, this was a journey that my life was just on, a life uh, a journey that I, I didn't know I was on, but I think it was certainly a journey um, that 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 I was on, a journey that I was supposed to take. So uh, my my co-worker, uh, Josh Miller, who is the co-lead artist on the Unknown Project with me, he and I were part of uh, this group called uh, Roots and Wings in 2016. So here in, in Louisville in 2016, there was a group called Roots and Wings, and it consisted of a uh, ten um, black artists, different type of artists, dance, and we had a DJ singing. They played instruments, poetry, and I was I was one of the poets, and we were making this uh, uh, drawing this correlation from West Africa to 
uh, Eastern Kentucky and in West Africa is where the banjo was invented. And so, and then, of course, that's translated and brought here to uh, Eastern Kentucky. So we were drawing this correlation between West Africa and, and Kentucky. And so we were taking a trip to Dakar, Senegal. And the week that we were going to Dakar, I logged onto Facebook and Philando could still have been shot by the police. And his girlfriend, it went live on, on Facebook. So this was on Facebook uh, live. And I remember uh, his girlfriend, she was saying to the police, I know you just didn't kill him. He had on this white t-shirt. You could see this blood start to pool across his shirt. And that same week, Alton Sterling was uh, shot by the police outside of a, a convenience store for selling CDs. So I was like really ready to leave America and go somewhere else, really ready. And so that was the week that we were leaving. And people were asking me at the time, well, Hannah, what, you know, what are you going to say to the community? And, and I just didn't know what else I could say to the community. And I know that I'm a speaker and a, a writer, but I was I just was at a loss for words. I didn't know what to say to make it any better. I was just ready to leave. And so uh, we we got on the plane and like the minute, the minute I stepped into Senegal, it was as if I knew immediately I belong here. This is why I belong in this space. It was the first time um, I wasn't the other person. And I remember, so we were only there for two weeks. And like the second week, my friend Cynthia and I went to this shop to buy earrings. And we were like holding the earrings in such a way that the shop owner wouldn't think we were trying to steal them. And we were so used to being in America and everything that you do as a Black person is criminalized. So just walking or breathing or existing or driving or shopping, you know, there's always this attention on you as if you're a criminal. And so so we're used to that in America. It's just the way many Black people exist in, in the world. And so we were trying to hold the earrings so the shop owner wouldn't think uh, we were trying to steal. When we went to pay, we realized the shop owner was outside and like she wasn't even thinking about us, right? And so it dawned on us Oh, wait a minute. No, nobody cares that we're black here because everybody's black. And so that in itself is not enough for you to be seen as a criminal because we all we all have the same skin color, pretty much. We're all black. And so it was the first time in my life that I felt this freedom. I was 40 years old. And it was the first time I felt like, wow, I, this is how it feels to live this way. Never experienced that before. And so I was just determined to enjoy the rest of my time there in Senegal. One of the places we were going, uh, despite as much enjoyment as I was having that I knew would be difficult was going to Gory Island. I'd never of course been to Gory Island before. And in fact, before this trip, I had never left the United States before. This is my first trip out of the United States. I remember you have to take a boat to get to Gory Island. And on this island is a what they call a slave castle. And so when you think about, when I tell this to people, uh, in America, we hear castle and we think like a Disney castle, right? like something we see on a Disney station. But it's it doesn't look like that at all. It's a two-story stone 
building and on the bottom floor of this building are different rooms. And in, in this uh, castle, they separate families immediately. And there was a room for men and a room for women, a room for young women, a room for infants, and a room for people that would resist. And underneath the stairs, uh, there was like a crawl space area and we asked the curator, what is this space for? And they would put people that would resist underneath the stairs. And so I asked him, well, how many people could fit underneath uh, the stairs in this space? And he said, it didn't matter how many people could fit. They don't know how many people could fit. What mattered to them was closing the door. So they would just have bodies on top of bodies underneath these stairs. On top of the all of these rooms, would be where uh, people that were catching uh, um, Africans to bring them or to transport them uh, to America would be. Um, and so I recall my daughter going in the room for young girls and she started crying this cry that I'd never heard her uh, cry before. And I haven't heard her cry that way since. And it kind of filled up and echoed in this space. And then I went to uh, what they call the door of no return. And that is the last point. It, it is a literal door that looks out to the ocean. Uh, it is the last point where Africans would have been before they're put on uh, slave ships. And I tried to stand in that door and wonder what it would be like um, and hearing my daughter crying and wondering what it would be like then if I was going to be separated from my family and then taken where. Um, and I often remind people when I tell them this because we are so uh, entrenched in technology now that it's kind of hard to envision a world without technology. But I always remind people that this is not um, like, oh, I'll call you when I get there. I'll email you once I arrive at the, the place and I'll let you know uh, where I'm at. That did not exist. And so you're essentially being kidnapped, taken away from your family, and you have no idea uh, where you are going. Um, and so when I stood in that space, I wanted to see the other side of this in America. I wondered what that looked like. For some reason, Kentucky just never entered my mind. I just thought, oh, I'm going to have to go south, like deep south, right? When we came back to, to America uh, with my, my job, said, oh, Hannah, we're doing some work in Natchez, Mississippi. And you're going to go to Natchez, Mississippi uh, to work with this group called Girls and Pearls. And they were learning about the history and heritage of Natchez and how to use the history and heritage of Natchez through art to tell stories. And so I started Googling about Natchez, Mississippi, and I thought, no, I don't think I'm going to Mississippi. I, that's not somewhere that I really want to go. Uh, they had met, they had done work in Mississippi for a while uh, Josh and his partner, Theo, that done work in Mississippi for a while and that met a tour guide there named Jeremy Houston. He There's only two Black tour guides in Natchez and Jeremy is one of the two. And that met Jeremy and they said, no, you'll connect with Jeremy. You'll be fine. You'll go meet these, these young women and do this work. So I talked to Jeremy on the phone and he told me, Hannah, when you uh, come to 
Natchez, you have to fly into Baton Rouge. Because Natchez is very small, very, very small town. And then you have to drive. So you fly into Baton Rouge and you drive to Natchez, Mississippi. And he said, Hannah, when you drive here from Baton Rouge, do not drive through Jackson, Mississippi, because I cannot guarantee your safety. When you get in the car, drive straight here to Natchez and don't stop anywhere else. And my daughter was with me once again on this trip. Uh, we got in the car and we had mapped this out. We knew we weren't stopping. We had all these plans. And this is 2017, I believe. So this is not like a long time ago. This is don't stop. We knew the reasons why he, were, he was telling us not to stop. Uh, we knew it was racially motivated. And so this isn't years and years and years ago. This just a few years ago. Just don't stop, get in the car and go. And so my daughter and I flew to Baton Rouge and then we drove to, to uh, Natchez, Mississippi. Driving to uh, Natchez, you could see you could see um, the asphalt turn into gravel. It was as if you were going back into time. I started seeing a lot of Confederate flags, and and then I saw um, cotton fields as as far as my eye could see. And before we went, I'd spoken to my mom. My mom is 73 years old, and I was telling her about my trip to Senegal and telling her I was going to Mississippi. And I was telling her about this, and I needed to understand this other side of enslavement. And my mom casually says to me, well, Hannah, you know, when I was a little girl, I used to pick cotton. My mom had never told me this before. I said, what are you talking about? And she said, well, when I was nine, I my grandmother would pick me and my brothers and sisters up and take us to the field, and we would pick cotton. And I said, how long did you do this? And she said, I did it for three years until I was 12 years old. And I said, well, how much money did you make doing this? And she said, I made 80 cents a day. And I said, well, tell me more about this experience. So she'd never talked about this. And she said, I don't want to talk about it. And she never spoke of it again. And the only thing she did tell me was, I, I won't discuss uh, the names that I was called in those fields. And I did ask her, so well, what was your grandmother's name? She never talked about her grandmother. And all of my grandparents died when I was very young. And she said, I don't remember her name. We just called her Mamie. And I knew instantly that a part of me had been lost. The part of my mother was certainly lost in these cotton fields. And so I was even more intent on seeing them. And so when I made it to Mississippi and connected with Jeremy, I told Jeremy, well, I want to visit uh, the plantation homes. I've never seen a plantation. Let's go see them. And he said to me, Hannah, uh, no, you don't understand. You can't just walk in those homes. They still live in them. They've just passed them down to their families. And I was stunned. And he said, but there are some homes that have been uh, uh, donated to the Parks Department that I will take you to see. He never walks in these homes. He would only take me to the, the front door. He never went inside of them. Uh, my daughter and I did go to tour some of the homes and the homes are mansions. They are absolutely stunning. Uh, one home I went in had a solid gold chandelier. They had the original china out on the table. 
Um, and one of the casserole dishes, the knob was shaped like a, a cotton ball and it was solid gold. And above this table uh, was this big wooden fan. I did not know what this was. And the tour guide, who was the other black tour guide of this particular home, uh, told me that's called a punka. And I said, well, what is that? And he said, it's a fan and the string attached to it, a young uh, a slave girl would stand in the corner and pull this string and it would wave the fan back and forth to keep the flies off the food. And I was just so saddened that somebody was uh, enslaved to keep flies off of food. And I started crying and he told me, Hannah, don't uh, weep for her because she has a very important job. When people eat, they tend to talk. And her job is to stand in that corner and listen to everything that is said around the table and go back and tell her mother in case they have an opportunity to escape. Instantly, when I heard him say, go back and tell, I knew that was my job. I was supposed to go back and tell this story. Finally, I told Jeremy, well, take me. I want to go uh, to the cotton fields. And he took me to a Frogmore plantation and still a working plantation, still cotton plantation. They have 1800 acres of cotton and they allow you to go out into the field. You can pick the cotton. They have um, a slave cabins still on the property. Everything is, is as it was. And so I asked the owner of this plantation, well, tell me how much cotton would enslaved people have to pick a day? And he said two to 300 pounds a day. Uh, and I asked him, well, how much cotton can fit in one of the bags that enslaved people had to put cotton in? And he said 70 pounds, uh, uh, 70 pounds can fit. They would have to walk it back to the way station, go back and, and, and pick the rest for the day or suffer uh, the consequences. So I thought about that. I thought about my mom. I thought about not knowing uh, even my own great grandmother's name because my mom could not recall her grandmother's name. Uh, and then I came back to, oh, well, before I came back to Kentucky, we went to visit the African American Museum there. And on the wall was a map. And this map traced the route to what they call the Forks of the Road, which was the second largest slave market in the South. And the route came down from Kentucky. And so I knew immediately once I saw that map that Kentucky was intricately involved in the slave trade. How intricately, I didn't know yet until I came back and I was talking to my friend, Rachel Platt at the Fraser, And she asked me, Hannah, do you know uh, Thornton and Lucy Blackburn. And I said, no, I never heard of them. Who, who was Thornton and Lucy Blackburn? And she told me it was an enslaved couple that had escaped from Louisville and made it all the way to Canada. Uh, they wanted to do something about the Blackburns in the museum. And they wanted me to work with them. And I said, well, I'm going, what, me and my daughter, once again, going to the South, I'm because <laughs> we just love it. But I'm going, I'm going to Alabama. Uh, in Alabama, I was going to Montgomery, Alabama, because they'd opened the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, which is also known as the Lynching Museum. And I wanted to see this museum. And so I said, I'm going to Alabama to see this museum. When I come back, we can talk about what project we will do. And when I went to uh, Montgomery to see this museum, they have pillars 
that have the names of Black people that were lynched in the South. In order for your state to be in this museum, your state had to lynch over 100 people. Kentucky is in that museum. Kentucky lynched 169 people that they know of. But also on these pillars uh, was the word unknown and a date. So they did not know the name of the person that was lynched, uh, but they know that someone in fact had been lynched. Eight of the 169 people that Kentucky lynched are listed as unknown. I wanted to know who were they and how can someone exist and live and breathe and be in this world and be recorded throughout history as unknown. And uh, when I came back, that's when Josh and I immediately start talking about uh, doing the Unknown Project and trying to find not just those that were lynched, but enslaved people in Kentucky. Um, and that was the birth of the Unknown Project. And when we started researching, we found that Kentucky had sold 80,000 people um, down the river. The phrase being sold down the river originated in Kentucky. And so they had sold 80,000 uh, Black people down South. And in fact, uh, Kentucky uh, had about 200,000 people that were enslaved in this state, uh, many of them in Louisville and Lexington. And I'm sure many of you do know the slave market was right downtown on 2nd and Main Street. So a lot of people, when they think about slavery, they always think about a, a plantation. And it's this huge plantation and it's hundreds of enslaved people. And that did happen here. But many families here owned at least five enslaved people because enslaved people weren't just in the field, they were craftsmen and, and painters and sewers, and many of them were barrel makers, which we of course know uh, Kentucky is famous for bourbon. Um, many of them were master distillers. So uh, many people enslaved people to do intricate crafts work um, in, in Kentucky. Uh, the truth of the matter is that slavery built Kentucky. It was the economic engine of Kentucky. Here in Kentucky, while there wasn't cotton, uh, Kentucky grew hemp. And for each bale of hay, 15 pounds of hemp went into it because the hemp had to be tied up. And in Kentucky, right here at Farmington, Farmington Plantation, right off of Bardstown Road, enslaved people had to break 90 pounds of hemp a day. It was labor intensive work um, that a lot of people, a lot of enslaved people did here in Kentucky. The bags that cotton were put was put in was made out of hemp. So it was very important for us to start telling this story. It's kind of a story that Kentucky has buried, and it was our job to start exhuming those names. When people heard about the Unknown Project, as Barbara mentioned, this project down at the water, it has two benches. We wanted it at the Ohio River because the Ohio River was the dividing line between a slave state and a free state. Indiana 
uh, was a free state. If you could make it to the town clock church in New Albany, that was a stop on the Underground Railroad. So many people would look for that clock in order to make their way towards freedom. Uh, one thing I learned about the town clock church before I just tell you how the project looks that I love um, is that they would kind of get to smuggle, get enslaved people that had escaped on the train and, and Kentucky would send slave catchers after them. The only person that could let uh, slave catchers on the train was the conductor, but the conductor was working with the Underground Railroad. And so the conductor just wouldn't allow the slave catchers to get on the train. That's the beauty of community and, and working together. I tell people this all the time. It was true then. It is true today. None of this happens without us all working together. It is in possible. It could not happen unless Black people and white people were working together. It's the same way today. The things that we see today, the injustice that we see today, it will not end. It will not stop unless Black people and white people and everybody else work together. That's the only way it works. It will not work any other way. And so anyways, that's why we wanted the project at the Ohio River. We wanted it where people could look right over into Indiana and see how close uh, uh, freedom was, yet it was so far um, away. We worked with two artists, William, uh, William Duffy and Dave Caudell, which just came together brilliantly where they constructed um, benches where people can sit and actually look across the, the Ohio River. Um, at the base of the benches are chains and they are broken open to symbolize freedom. Um, and there are also, I believe it's five sets of footprints. Uh, the footprints, one is Elmer Lucille Allen, who was the first uh, African-American chemist at Brown Foreman. One of the footprints is of the grandson of Jane Blaine Hudson, who started the Pan-African Department at the University of Louisville. Uh, one of the footprints uh, is of my daughter, Brianna Wright, who uh, uh, is Ja'Cory Authors' legislative assistant. She ran his campaign, and Ja'Cory is the youngest uh, person to be elected to Louisville Metro Council. And another set of footprints is from a young man named Nigel Blackburn. We were very interested in his last name. Uh, we had worked with Nigel for a long time at Youth Violence Prevention Program. We were very interested in his last name uh, because of the Blackburns. And we asked him to please uh, research his name if, in fact, it could be that uh, he could be some relative, you know, descendant of the Blackburn family. And uh, on the backs of these benches, one of the most important things uh, for me is people started contacting us immediately. Uh, once they heard about the project and saying, in fact, my family did enslave people and here are their names. Uh, one lady contacted us and said, I've had a ledger on my bookshelf since the 60s. It's passed on in my family. And in this ledger are the names of 50 people that my family enslaved. And I've been holding on to this and didn't know what to do with it. Can I give you the names? And I said, of course you can. 
Uh, you all spoke of this being a group about reconciliation. This is one of the first steps. And I tell people all the time, it is 2023 at the time, 2022. Nobody thinks you enslaved anybody, but you're ashamed because you know that your family did. And so you're holding on to that because you don't want to tell anyone because you're ashamed. But it isn't shame that sets us free. The truth is what sets us free. And if these people could not be freed in life, at the very least, you can free them in death and give us the names. And in fact, uh, we have received over 800 names of people that were enslaved in Kentucky and their names were just hidden. Two things I will say, and then we can have questions or whatever, but one, always say nobody is unknown. They're just hidden. They're just hidden. And people have the information in an old Bible, an old will, in a family chest, in the attic somewhere. So when people ask me, Hannah, how do I find? I tell them, first, go ask some of your family members. Go ask some of your oldest family members if you can, because they know they're just hiding the truth because they're ashamed of the truth. And there's no reason to carry the shame or the guilt. What's done is done. You cannot... Uh, unbake a cake. You cannot unscramble an egg. Once it's done, it's done. What's happened in history is done. And the only thing that we can do now is to learn from it. And finally, I told you all about my mother and my great-grandmother, whose name I didn't know, and this journey that I was on. And as life would have it, uh, uh, when I checked my Facebook in my spam, this woman named Dana uh, sent me a message and had read about the unknown project in the New York Times. Uh, she does genealogy and she traced my family for me. And she said, I can uh, tell you that your great grandmother's name is Eliza Cochran. And she was uh, born into slavery and she lived to be 111 years old. So you can go back and tell your mom that her grandmother's name was Eliza Cochran. So as I was looking and trying to find names for everybody else, in fact, I ended up finding my family. So um, there are many other uh, places, some of them uh, ironically, were in Mississippi, not far from where I was in Mississippi. And last year I went to Charleston, uh, uh, South Carolina. And in fact, where my family initially was, was uh, were enslaved was in Columbia, South Carolina on the Lorick Plantation. And I will be visiting the Lorick Plantation uh, where my family was enslaved. So my family was not unknown. They were just uh, hidden from history. So uh, that's how the Unknown uh, Project came to be. I believe it was always a journey. Um, and, and it was something I believe Kentucky um, needed. This project was thought of in 2019, uh, well before Breonna Taylor. And we knew before Breonna Taylor had ever happened that Louisville, Kentucky as a whole needed to address race and racism in, in this city and in this state. Uh, the very same thing that happened to enslaved people 
uh, was happening to Brianna. Her name was just buried. And it took people exhuming her name for her to finally uh, not be unknown, but be known. So that that's the unknown project. So thank you for letting me share the, the origin tales. <laughs> Hannah, I have so many thoughts, but the first thing I want to say that, you know, I'm a fan of finding your roots on Tuesday night. As a, as a librarian, I just want to urge people to use your public library because you can get, you, you start from what you know yourself, your parents, your grandparents, and work back, but the librarians can help you with the census records on ancestry.com. And there were, there were parts of the census that were slave schedules, as well as the uh, inhabitants of the country and librarians at the public library can work with you and free of charge to, uh, to help you get started. And the other thing I wanted to say is that Kentucky, because it stayed in the Union, it did not, it, it has such a complicated history for that reason. Uh, and it doesn't get the emphasis on enslaved people that the Southern states like Mississippi and Alabama do. But the two books, one in the 19th century, one in the 20th, have been so, have brought Kentucky on the map, at least as far as I'm concerned, that was Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Snow, who was an abolitionist and was very influential at the time around the Civil War in changing people's minds about slavery and enslaved people. And then in our own time, uh, Beloved by Toni Morrison, which talked about Margaret Garner, who escaped to Ohio and then was captured again and taken back across the river to Kentucky. And who killed her child, her little daughter, because she did not want to take her back to a slave state. And those are the two, in, in my mind, just has made me think that, that those two books are so valuable to bring Kentucky into this picture. But with your discussion here, it's you add to that. Thank you so much. In such a big way. It's a very, it's, it's um, you know, sometimes the more I learn about Kentucky, the more um, it it hurts. It, it, I can't, I can't lie and say it doesn't hurt. It does hurt. Um, you know, like I said, Kentucky has done a very good job of, of concealing a history. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, it's the truth. It happened. Kentucky was one of the last, if not the last states to ratify a slavery. Um, it, it did not want to let go of that. Kentucky, um, as I study public art, and this art piece was gifted to the city of Louisville. It is in their public art um, collection. Um, I believe there are 50, I believe, Confederate monuments or artworks here in, in, in Kentucky. And if you are part of the union, well, then you're putting up Confederate artwork. And they did a survey, and I can send this to Barbara, she can send out the reading to you, but um, Kentucky largely voted to keep up all the Confederate statues, all of them. It's a painful history. Um, it's not a history that makes me feel good. So this is the other thing when people say, oh, you know, you learn these things and I don't want to feel uncomfortable. I don't feel comfortable. It hurts me. Uh, but I I believe so much in Kentucky. And I don't even know if it's Kentucky. I believe in people. I just believe we can be better. I believe in humanity. I just can't give up on that. Uh, I have to hope 
that we will get better. And I know that I'm just, I'm planting seeds for a harvest I'm not going to see. I won't see it. I don't believe I'll ever see that in my lifetime where someone like my niece who was 10, she might see it where she can live freely as herself and it's okay. But I have to do the work now for people that are coming behind me, for people to understand everybody deserves to have their name remembered in history. We cannot keep bearing the truth and bearing people as if they did not exist. That's not okay. If you have nothing else in the world, you may not have a dollar, a nickel to your name, but you have a name. Hannah, this is a roadie street. We have uh, uh, someone uh, with a, just a phone number. I don't know her name with her hand up and, and then some uh, questions in, in the chat. One of them is how can we support the unknown project? Oh, if you, if you go to unknownprojecttrail.com, you can, you can donate. Uh, please tell people about it. If you have names, if you know of someone that may have names, if you have names, you can uh, uh, upload the information on our website. Uh, you can email it to me. People have DM'd it to me. People have called me with it. However, you can send it by a pigeon if you want. I don't care. What matters to me is that those names are are remembered. That That's what is important. Um, so anyway, that you can support this work financially or just word of mouth sharing information, I, I'm more than pleased and thank you. And the person that has their hand up, if you want to unmute and just ask your question, thank you. Or anyone else, you can just ask your question, just unmute yourself and ask Hannah. Uh, Rody, this is Barbara Boyd. I can relate to everything you're saying. I'm 73 years old, the age of your mother. I did mm -hmm. not know my great-grandmother, but I knew my well, I knew my great-grandmother because she has a headstone in Franklin, Kentucky. I have been to Montgomery, Alabama, which is rich in our history. But the two things occurred to me as you were speaking. One is Black history is also white history. Yeah. And uh, mm -hmm. together, collaboratively, we can tell that story because there were a lot of people that helped us, and we have a lot of uh, abolitionist uh, people that help us now. 110% uh, correct. And the other thing is, I really want to work with you with Asala to get your story out because our children need to hear it. But I'm a little concerned about, uh, and, I've, and I've mentioned it to uh, a friend of mine in the Kentucky Alliance about a lady running on the GOP ticket as a woman of color. Uh, that connotation means a lot to me because it means my people and maybe uh, Native Americans and Asians. But um, Europeans to me are not women of color. And um, I'd like to maybe get with you and a fellowship of Re reconciliation to explore that connotation because it, it, it's bothering me. And our history does hurt, but it's not just our history. It's white history too. Very much so. Very, very much so. The You know, Dr. King was correct when he said we are inescapably intertwined. Um, our, our histories are connected. 
uh, a Black history is American history. It's what happened. Uh, slavery is uh, embedded in the foundation of America. And I can't hide that or lie about that or pretend that didn't happen or pretend it wasn't so bad. It, it happened. And the only way, like I said, we grow is to discuss it and discuss it truthfully. Uh, discuss what truly happened in, in Kentucky and, and many, many, many other states uh, across this nation. Yeah. There's no other way. It happened. Just like, you know, your analogy of you can't unbake a cake, uh, unscramble an egg. It, I mean, let's talk about it and move on and try to do the healing. Yeah, that's and the your presentation was amazing. Thank you. That that is truly the part that I I want anyone to get when they visit the unknown project, and I think it is providing that it is this gateway for people to start along the path of healing and reconciliation. And that doesn't come from hiding the truth. Uh, no one is free when they are hiding something. You're free when oh, you one, tell the truth. There's one other thing I wanna mention that you mentioned. Member of Sowers of Justice uh, taught her children through homeschooling a couple of years ago. And this was right before the pandemic. And she took her children to Eastern Kentucky. Mm -hmm. There are stories in Kentucky about enslaved people that white folks know about, but they say they can't talk about. They can talk mm -hmm. about it to other white people, but they can't talk about it because somehow or another they've been sworn to silence. That is a gateway to, I don't know what kind of stories or what kind of history or information that maybe we could seek after. I hope one day, you know, and we don't, we, we put the information out. We don't, you know, we're not gonna knock anyone over the head. We just hope that this is an open door and a calling to people. We don't, we, we, you know, we put out the information and we tell people, if you have names, please share them. And inevitably, it always happens. I think that's just the beauty of the work, uh, that hopefully people understand in order for me to get free, I have to do this. There's no need for you to hold on to it. There's no need to hold on to that story. You can free yourself and, and free them. And so I hope that the Unknown Project continues to be a, a gateway for that. Brody, Beverly, Kathy. Yes. If you have any other questions? Well, I do want to do one thing here, and then we'll have more questions, because uh, we say that we end at one. And so before one, I want to remind you all that our third Thursday lunch next month falls in Women's History Month, uh, and it will be on March the 16th, Thursday at 12 noon. And I hope that you'll all come back and, and join the program then. Uh, but now back to uh, the questions. We can go past one o'clock as long as we have questions and Hannah is, 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 is willing to, to be there to answer uh, them. But I, I do wanna say that it's a journey that, that you've laid the path out for, for all of us, white, black, and 
it's a journey forward by using the past to point us there. My ideas are not really fully formed at this moment, but that that is what I am taking from your from your talk. And it is to be up close and personal with you in this way, though we're not in person at Hotel Louisville, but is has been really thrilling for me and I hope for every for everybody else. It has truly personalized the situation as as Americans uh, for for us all. So thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think everybody's speechless because <laughs> um, they have a lot to um, unpack yes, as well as, as we do. And that's okay. That's okay because it will come in time. It might hit you in the middle of the night. It's a journey. We have a couple. We do have a couple of questions up, uh, Corey, and then um, is it Cindy there? Corey. I can't see them, so if someone else would take the lead on that, I'd appreciate it. Thanks, thanks, Barbara, and thanks, Hannah, for um, for the work that you're doing, for being with us today. Um, what is what is in my mind, or what I really appreciated it, is your your statement. Um, it's the truth that sets us free, and not the shame. And I'm aware, I know that to be true, and I think um, some of us, and particularly white people, may get stuck in the shame. Um, and and one of the things that I think a lot about is is really it's it's about moving from the shame into the the process of mourning. And I would just love for you to to speak about kind of that transition, that allowing that, however you want to describe it, from the, the holding on to the tightly to that shame and moving into that place of mourning, which is the, the healing space and the potential for that healing and reconciliation. Yeah, I think, the first, and, and this is anything in life, and we all know this, the first thing is just admitting something to yourself. And, and one thing when I talk to, to many white people, uh, though it may sound hor harsh, I tell them, like, who told you it was going to feel good? Who told you this process was going to feel good? The only thing I can promise you is that it's not going to feel good. That's the only thing I can do because nobody, and this is anybody, it could be anything about yourself because we all have stuff. We all have the stuff, right? And it doesn't feel good to admit the ugly parts of us. You know, I overeat or I drink too much or I smoke or I'm lazy or I procrastinate. No one likes to go inside. It doesn't matter what it is. It's not going to feel good. So I tell people all the time, it reminds me of, th this is how you, you do it. It reminds me of when I used to be part of this boot camp. I hated this boot camp. I hated it. I went every day. I literally hated it every day of my life. Every day I went, I hated it. And my daughter, and I was sore and I couldn't walk and I could everything. And my daughter said, why, why don't you just quit? You know, you cry. I came home crying every day. And, and I had shin splints and it, my legs hurt so bad. And I went to buy like all these different tennis shoes. Like, and I didn't care how much it cost. I was going to get the Adidas or the Nikes or the Reba, whatever it was. Cause I wanted my legs to stop hurting so bad and none of them worked. And then finally it dawned on me. The only way this is going to stop hurting is if I do it every day. And one day, and I don't know when it just stopped hurting because I was doing it every single day. I had to go through it. 
And that's what people need to realize when it comes to facing this. You just have to go through it and it's not going to feel good. And it doesn't matter how you dress it up. It doesn't matter if you put Nikes on it, Reeboks, Asics, it doesn't matter. Your shins are going to hurt. It's going to hurt every day. But then one day, it's not going to hurt as bad. And one day you will look back and say, I went through that. And I learned about my family. And I learned the truth about the families they enslaved. What I am looking forward to when I found, okay, well, this is my mom's last name. It's Lorik. And she lived, her, she's a descendant from the Lorks in, in, in South Carolina. So let me start searching. And there's this entire white side of the Lord. And I said, oh, do I have a story to tell you? You know, I told, that we need to sit down and have a conversation because somehow we're related and I'm going to tell you how we're related. Um, but I'm looking forward to having this conversation. I'm looking forward to meeting this other side. You can open up your entire life to a wealth of information and growth and beauty and joy and things you just didn't know. Uh, but you don't get that if you don't go through it. There's gonna be some ugly parts. There are gonna be some parts that are beautiful and amazing. And too, I, I just um, thank you for that. And um, I think also there's there's the part that is the, the individual journey as well as really embracing the collective journey because the, yes. the healing has to happen on both levels. Yeah, on multiple levels. Yeah. Completely true. A couple more last questions, perhaps. Hannah, uh, I worked uh, with a coalition working on equity issues at JCPS and uh, your story about going to uh, Gory Island uh, touched me deeply. I've been to one of the castles in, in Ghana. Uh, how, how can you introduce this to children and when can they receive this kind of information, both white and black? I, what your daughter must have gone through, uh, she was lucky to have you there with her to process it, but um, it's, it's some terrible, terrible truths. And there yeah. And do you work with JCPS or how, what is the right place for this information? Because the children can learn this early and not grow up with all the baggage we have about it. That is my, my hope. Every time I think, I think, thank God for the young people. That is my, <laughs> that is my hope that the young people will help us. Uh, but I, I do believe there is a way to talk about anything with young young children. Uh, they may not have to know every single detail as an older child would, but I believe there's a way to even start having this talk about injustice. Uh, there's a way to start talking about that with young people. But I've talked about this very thing with middle school students, with high school students. I have talked about uh, the map and shown it to young kids and we're at the river. And I asked them, uh, uh, do you see the map? And they see it and they see the river. And then I point to the river and they get it. They get that these things are the same um, because there's always uh, a way to discuss anything. You may have to be a little bit more sensitive with young people, but I always tell young people or just even adults, black children deal with racism at a very early age, very early age. And so it's okay for white children to learn about racism 
at a very early age. It's okay. It is okay. And, you know, you think about someone like Ruby Bridges, what, six years old, six years old, and had to deal with that. So, you know, what, what I always want to ask is why is that acceptable? And yet we're afraid to teach young white kids about history. Well, we are out of time. We want to thank Hannah Drake for her presentation. And we want to thank the Little Fellowship of Reconciliation and Swords of Justice for sponsoring today's third Thursday lunch event that featured Hannah Drake. The Solution to Violence program featuring Hannah Drake will air again Tuesdays at 8 a.m. and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. You can listen live stream if you visit us at forwardradio.org and click on Listen Live Now. You can also listen to Solutions Around's program featuring Hannah Drake via our archives if you visit us at forwardradio.org, scroll down to Program Archives, and then scroll down to the Solutions to Violence program that features Hannah Drake. For Solutions to Violence and WFMP Radio, I'm Jim Johnson. Thanks for listening.